Friends, what makes our message, the Christian message, the gospel, what makes what makes our message compelling? What makes people want to hear it? I wonder if you've thought about that before. Because I think we can function in a lot of different ways. Is our message compelling because it's entertaining? I think we can operate that way sometimes. We can operate like people will be interested in the gospel only if they were entertained if, when they hear it. Now, we can't say, to be fair, that we shouldn't be bored by the gospel. If we're bored with good news, we can't expect people to receive it as good news. But if we have to entertain people, then boy, people can just go to way better places than here at church. <laughs> what makes our message compelling? Do people want to listen to our message because it's impressive? Will people finally listen to what we have to say when we are polished and insightful and smart? Now, to be fair, we can say that we should grow in our knowledge of what we believe. We should grow in how we communicate what we believe. But 1 Corinthians 1, a place like that, is very clear that the world will always find the message of a crucified Messiah as foolish, not impressive. What's our message compelling? Is our message compelling because it's relevant? Because it's in line with the latest trends and thinking and research? Now, to be fair, we should show how the gospel endures through the challenges of every single age. But if our only goal is relevance, then we risk compromising the message to gain the world's approval. So what is it? What makes our message compelling? Well, more than its entertainment value, more than its impressiveness, more than its relevance, you know what makes our message compelling? Our lives. Our lives. The proof in the proverbial pudding is that, we, is that what we believe really shapes how we live. Actually makes a difference for how we act God has always had a plan to show off his good and holy character through the lives of his good and holy people. And as we dive back into the book of Leviticus, we can see this plan here as well. And just to bring you up to speed a little bit, to review the story of Leviticus. Remember that Leviticus is not merely a set of do's and don'ts. Leviticus, remember, is a set of resolutions to problems. So this reminds us that Leviticus comes within a bigger story than just that book. This bigger story begins with God, who has a plan to reconcile the world to himself, specifically through one group of people. This group of people gets started with a guy named Abram. You might remember him. You might know him better as Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God tells Abraham that through him and his descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now fast forward to the book of Exodus, and Abraham's descendants, yes, they multiply, but they're enslaved to Egypt. And out of no merit of their own, out of no power of their own, God delivers his people from Egypt. But God's plan was to do more than just deliver them. His plan wasn't to deliver them and just leave them there. God planned to deliver his people to dwell with his people. And we see that by the end of Exodus. By the end of Exodus, God sets up camp where his people have set up camp. 
God's people are dwelling in tents, and God himself will dwell in a tent known as the tabernacle. Now, the problem by the end of Exodus is that, yes, God dwells with them, which is great news, but the people can't go near him. You see, God is holy. The people are sinful. God is clean. The people are dirty. And so the first half of Leviticus really solves this problem. God tells his people that they can approach his presence through sacrifices that are mediated by priests. And once a year, God gives them a way to restore and cleanse the place where he dwells after it's been defiled by their sin through the past year. That's Leviticus 1 to 16. And that's where we left off. God's people have access to God's presence. That's great news. They can come near to the Lord. What is that it? Or does God want something more? You see, the ideal would be for the people to avoid sin altogether so that they can continue to enjoy God's presence. The ideal would be this: as they enjoy God's presence, they start to change. They start to sin less, and they start to look more like the God who is among them. So by dwelling with his people, God wants more than just to be there and camp out. By dwelling with his people, God intends to shape his people. God's preparing them for the land that he's bringing them to, the promised land, the land of Canaan. And it's in the, it's in the promised land where God's people will display to the nations around them what God is like. It's there that God will begin his plan to reconcile the world to himself through one group of people. That's the plan. At least that's how it started out. So as we come to Leviticus chapter 17 to 20, don't just see a list of do's and don'ts. See the God who has already saved his people, the God who already dwells with his people, and now the God who shapes his people. We can sum up the chapter like this with one main point. You see it on the back of your bulletin. It says, God dwells with his people to shape them into those who are devoted to him, who are different from the world, and who display his character. God dwells with his people to shape them into those who are devoted to him, different from the world, and who display his character. So if you're not there yet, turn to Leviticus chapter 17. You'll find it on page 96. If you're looking at a Bible, it looks like this. The chair in front of you, page 96. If you're new to the Bible, this is a good place to be. Uh, you can find a chapter by looking at the big, bold numbers on the page and the verse number by looking at the small, little numbers after the chapter numbers. So Leviticus chapter 17. So he said God dwells with his people to shape his people. So God dwells among his people, and the first thing he shapes them into are those who are devoted to him alone. Now, if you look at chapter 17, just at a glance, this purpose to shape people into those who are devoted to him might not be obvious at first. In fact, if you look at the Bibles provided, you'll see two different headings in the chapter. One heading is above verse 1, and the other heading is above verse 10. Just a disclosure, these headings aren't part of the original text of Scripture, but they're often really helpful. So the first half of chapter 17 talks about the place of sacrifice, where they can make animal sacrifices. 
Now, the bottom line is they could sacrifice animals only at the tabernacle, only at God's tents. They couldn't sacrifice animals outside of that place. Now, this is just another small reminder that God regulates how people worship him. It's another small reminder that God cares more about just that he's worshipped. God cares about how he is worshipped. So maybe whoever hits the road here, maybe somebody has told you before that he feels like he worships best by going for a hike on Sunday mornings and singing to God there. Might be a good and fine thing to do. But, as well intended as that might be, that person looks to his own wisdom and his own convenience for how to worship God. He's not looking to what God says about how we should worship him. So here in Leviticus 17, when God's telling them, you should sacrifice in a certain place, he's telling them, I care about how you not just that you worship. So the second half of this chapter, chapter 17, if you look at the heading of it above verse 10, it's laws against eating blood. I know you were really tempted to do this this morning, so here's this chapter. <laughs> so why, why can't they eat blood? Good question. God gives reasons for this in verse 11. Chapter 17, verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on an altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the blood. So he tells them that they shouldn't treat blood casually because of what it represents. It's a symbol for the life of the creature. And it makes sense, right? If you lose blood, you'll lose life. They shouldn't treat blood casually also because of what God has given it to them for, to do. The blood of an animal is poured out for their sin. So when that happens, it communicates that one life is going in the place of another life. Now, look at these two halves of chapter 17. Where they sacrifice, and they can't eat or drink blood. Do these two halves fit together? I think verse 7 is a linchpin that holds these together. Verse 7 of chapter 17 says, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they whore. A lot to unpack there, I know. <laughs> but this reminds us that there is a background behind these instructions. God knows the place and the people that surround them. He knows the place and the people that will even tempt them. So you put these two halves together, and it protects against the loophole. So if they can sacrifice outside of the tabernacle, then they can keep their sacrifices to pagan gods a secret. And the worst and how people worshiped pagan gods, at least in that day and often in our own day, is that they drank blood. So I know people who did this would definitely win the show Fear Factor if they were around today. Uh, but the logic is simple. Like we said, if you lose life when you lose blood, then the thought is you must gain life when you drink blood. God says don't. This is how people worship pagan gods. And coming back to verse 7, that strong language at the end of the verse, it shows what their relationship to the Lord is supposed to be like. It's like a marriage. They are to be singularly devoted to God. And so going after another God is like committing spiritual adultery. So far, Leviticus has talked mainly about approaching God in the sacred space of the tabernacle. And here in chapter 17, we begin to move outward. We begin to move into other realms of life besides when you go 
church, let's say. And but it's, it, it is a little, uh, it provides a little guidance. Their holiness in the world, beyond the sacred space, begins with drawing near to the presence of God. To be holy in the world, you have to begin with being near the Lord. I just made me think, I, I wonder if we can be stagnant in our growth because we don't draw near to the Lord consistently when we need to. Is that why we're not holy when we're outside of this place? Because we are not regularly near the Lord every day. So you see, holiness is kind of like getting a tan. You have to bask in the light of the sun in order to get tan. So you try to get holy without God's presence, it's like trying to get tan without being in the sun. You'll end up being cold, pale, rigid, probably trying to get holy without God's presence. But basking in God's presence, you will be warm, grateful, and humble. So chapter 17, too, so we're, God's beginning to secure their devotion to him beyond the sacred space of the tabernacle and all the other realms of life. Because there's a lot of temptation out there. There's plenty of things out there that would seek to pull them away. There's plenty of temptation that would say, go your own way, not God's way. And at this point, I think before we think of ourselves, we should think of Jesus. Because Jesus entered the wilderness beyond the sacred space, and he faced temptation to go his own way, not the Father's way. Jesus faced temptation even to bow down and worship Satan. But Jesus remained faithful. Jesus devoted himself to God and to God alone. And Jesus is more than just our example. If we are to be one with God again, we don't just need an example, friends, we need a sacrifice. And despite Jesus' faithful life, he gave his life, his blood was shed, and by his perfect sacrifice, we have full and final atonement for our souls. And now that we have the example of Jesus, now that we have atonement for our sin because of Jesus, now we gratefully walk devoted to God and to God alone. Because interestingly enough, when we continue reading the Bible, the Bible likens the Christian life to Israel's wilderness journey. We're not to the promised land yet. It's like we're in the wilderness. And as we walk in the wilderness, we might not feel tempted by goat demons, <laughs> but we sure as heck face temptation and adversaries that seek to undermine our singular devotion to God. We face temptation. Face enemies that seek to pull us away from God and God alone. So, if chapter 17 addresses life outside of the sacred space, maybe it's good to think about your life outside of this space. There's no more sacred spaces, there's no sacred people. But as we live outside of the world, brothers and sisters, maybe as a baseline principle, it's good to walk thoughtfully and carefully when you leave this place walk thought, thoughtfully and carefully. One helpful counsel that I've, I've heard is to be aware of influences in your life that make sin seem normal and godliness seem strange. That make going your own way the best thing to seem like the best thing to do and the right thing to do and seeing anything that limits your way as something that's oppressive and wrong. Be aware of influences like that. When you're aware of that, when you're attuned to that, you're going to see it everywhere. 
that things that make sin seem normal and even desirable and godliness seems strange and even wrong. It's everywhere. So God wants his people, he shapes his people to be devoted to him and to him alone. The next three chapters, chapters 18, 19, and 20, show us more about the kind of people that God is shaping. Remember, God delivers his people to dwell with his people. He dwells with his people to shape his people. And the next three chapters, 18, 19, and 20, they are like a sandwich. We've noticed these before in the book of Leviticus, so Moses must have liked the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of Subway. And so the buns <laughs> of this sandwich, 18 and 20, like the buns, they are God's negative vision for his people. This is the kind of people he doesn't want them to be like. And he tells them what will happen to them if they are like this kind of people. So in chapters 18 and 20, they are meant to shape people who are different from the world and set apart for God. Different from the world and set apart from God. Look with me at chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. Chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. These are like the North Star that orients us through the prohibitions of chapters 18 and in chapters 1. Chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. These verses orient us in a couple of ways. The first way, they remind Israel that these commands from God aren't random. They don't come out of nowhere. God's not up in heaven making up rules in order to tease his people. He's not up in heaven making up rules in order to keep them from enjoying life. These opening verses give us background to these rules. The background of these commandments is the lifestyles of the Egyptians and the Canaanites, where they used to live and where they're going to live. And these chapters will cover topics like sexual sin or cover topics like child sacrifice. And chapter 18, verses 1 to 5, reminds us this is how the Egyptian and Canaanite gods told tell their people how to live. So here's the background. And if you flip to the end of chapter 20 and find verse 22, chapter 20, verse 22, this tells us where the lifestyle of the Egyptians and the Canaanites will lead. So if they go in their way, this is where it will lead says that the land vomited them out. So, these verses orient us, they remind us that these rules aren't random. They have the background of the people around them who ended up in an awful situation. God doesn't want that awful situation for his people. But look back at chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. Again, they're like the North Star that orient us throughout the negative commands of chapters 18 and 20. And they orient us in another way. Notice a phrase that comes up several times in these verses. It's very easy to spot. The phrase, I am the Lord your God. 
This repeats over and over again to remind Israel of the relationship that they already have with God. They already belong to him. They don't belong to the world. And by following these instructions, they won't just be saying no to the world around them, they'll be saying yes to the God who saved them. By following these instructions, they won't just show the badness of the world's ways, they'll show the goodness of God's ways. And so what are the specific instructions for how God's people are to be different from the world and set apart from him? Well, let's take a look. We'll give an overview of the instructions of chapter 18 through 20. We'll start with 18. Chapter 18 gives instructions, you can even notice the heading, mainly about sex and marriage. These are our favorite topics, I know. <laughs> but sex and marriage is one of the most prominent areas where we can assert our own way and where we can assert our own desires. Sex and marriage are one of the most prominent areas that displays where our own ways and our, where our own desires will lead us. Just think about it today, and you don't have to think very hard about where our own ways and our own desires lead us in terms of treating sex and marriage on our own terms. Now, I want to say this humbly, also sadly, but for example, sex and marriage on our own terms, where does that lead you? schools. Go to our middle schools, you'll see plenty of kids as young as like 10 years old uh, who have sent naked pictures of themselves to each other. Go to our middle schools, see, see kids as, long, as young as 10, 11, 12 who are addicted to pornography at that age. And then what are these, what kind of young adults do these kids grow up to be? Go to college campuses where there is a hookup culture, no restraints. It's supposed to be great, but then you'll find at the same college campus that a majority of the girls there have been abused or even raped. And you don't even have to need these two extremes to see where our own desires and our own ways with sex and marriage lead. Look at how selfishness rips our families apart, <laughs> rips our homes apart. Leviticus 18 shows us the devastating outcomes of sex on our own terms. Those outcomes are, not, are nothing new. Sex and marriage is one of the first areas where we show that we belong to the Lord and not to ourselves. It's one of the first areas where we show the goodness of God's ways, not just the badness of the world's ways. So chapter 18, looking at it specifically, it prohibits a man from marrying and having sex with anyone who is a close blood relative or has become a close blood relative through marriage. So back in Genesis 2, 24, when God created marriage, he says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Leviticus 18 says, a man should not become one flesh with another person who is already his own flesh and blood. That's the bottom line. We look at chapter 18 also. Uh, it prohibits men from sleeping with other men. And, and prohibits men from sleeping with animals. Now, there's a lot we could say about this. So, disclaimer, this is not an exhaustive treatment of this topic. But just remember a couple things that we've already said. Remember that this command isn't random. Now, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes against the backdrop of how the people around them live. The people of Egypt, the people of Canaan. 
Remember that this command in chapter 18, it comes against the backdrop of what God created marriage to be. So even if Leviticus 18 or a place like Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6, even if these passages were in the Bible, it wouldn't change the goodness of God's created order for sex and marriage. When God created people in his image, he created them to be fruitful and multiply. Yes, the Bible will later account for those who are barren, those who are single, but those who go against the prohibitions of Leviticus 18 go directly against God's purpose for sex and marriage. Now when you flip to chapter 20, looking at specific instructions there, it contains more instructions about how God's people are to be different from the world and set apart for God. It contains consequences for sacrificing to other gods. Consequences for seeking guidance from, from other gods. Consequences for sexual sin. And maybe one that would catch our eye in verse 9. Chapter 20 contains consequences even for cursing your parents. Now, to be clear, this is more than just a little outburst. This would mean a settled determination to treat your parents as despicable people. Now, again, we shouldn't isolate this from the Bible's other commands. Especially, we shouldn't isolate this from the Bible's commands to parents. For parents to love their kids, for parents to provide for their kids, for parents to instruct their kids. When all is going right, parents represent God's authority to their children. That's what we told even Ken and Rachel this morning. Parents are meant to show their children what God is like. And so here, this instruction in chapter 20, verse 9. It's meant not to keep them from good, it's meant to lead them to good. When they guard how they treat their parents, it's meant to guard how they treat God. God means for the consequences he sets out in this chapter to act as a deterrent. And we don't know how many people experience the maximum penalty of death, but my guess is that this warning here kept a lot of people from doing stuff. God gives these consequences to show how serious it is to walk away from him, a God who is the source of all life. So, to review, God dwells with his people to shape his people. He shapes his people into those who are devoted to him alone. He shapes them into those who are different from the world. We look at Leviticus 18 and 20, and we've got to say we're, we live in a different time and place than these chapters. If we walk away from these chapters with our heads held high, if we walk away from these chapters feeling at all impressed with ourselves, well, friends, I think we've missed the point. We have not been different from the world. Brothers and sisters, we have lived like the world. I mean, just look at the areas that these chapters cover. Sex and marriage and family. We are all sinners in these areas. But as the Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane, famously said, he said, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. Jesus is different from the world around Maybe that's why the world hated him so much. Jesus honored his father and mother. Jesus treated women with kindness and respect. Jesus upheld the goodness of God's created order when he spoke about marriage. Leviticus 18 and 20 should rightfully make our heads hang low. But then we look to Jesus who lifts up our head again. And when Jesus died in our place, he not only paid for our sins, but he rescued us from the world. So many places talk about that. 
And now we say we are humbly different from the world that we used to be a part of. One verse says, uh, Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. When we say we are different from the world, that Jesus saved us from the world so that we live differently from the world, I think that can correct something how we normally think. It can correct what we think our friends and family need the most from around us. Here's a quote from a really good book called A Hole in Our Holiness by Kevin DeYoung. It says this, A dying world needs you to be with God more than it needs you to be with it. That's true for me as a pastor and true for you as a mother, father, brother, sister, child, grandparent, friend, Bible study leader, computer programmer, bank teller, barista, or CEO. Your friends and your family, your colleagues, your kids, they don't need you to do miracles or transform civilization. They need you to be holy. And to be clear, holiness doesn't equal stuffiness or self-righteousness. Holiness equals humbly walking close to the God who rescued us from the world. And chapter 19 will remind us that holiness is not just about the stuff we stop doing. Holiness is about the stuff we start doing. So last point. Let's see if you can remember the process, okay? God delivers his people. He delivers his people to do what? To dwell with his people. He dwells with his people to do what? To shape his people. Deliver to dwell, dwell to shape. And he shapes his people who are devoted to him, different from the world, and lastly, who display his character. Have you heard the story of the naked preacher? If you were sleeping, hopefully that woke you up. <laughs> Derwin Gray is a pastor in South Carolina and former defensive back for the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, the Lord saved Derwin through the witness of one of his teammates, one of the Dalton Colts. Uh, his teammate was Steve Grant. Steve Grant is a linebacker. He's 6'2", 240 pounds, very intimidating person. Uh, but every day, Steve Grant would, after practice, he would take a shower, and he'd dry off, and he'd wrap his towel around his waist, and then he would get his Bible and walk to his teammates' locker, uh, lockers, and he would ask them a simple question. Do you know Jesus? And so, Steve Grant's nickname was the Naked Preacher. <laughs> Steve asked Derwin this simple question for five years. And Derwin heard, heard more than this question from Steve. He, did, he actually saw how Steve played the game. And you know what really made a difference for Derwin is he saw how Steve treated his wife, his family. And you can see that he did not treat his wife and family the same way. Steve Grant did more than just talk about Jesus, which is important. Steve Grant also displayed Jesus' care. So we said that chapters 18, 19, and 20 are like a sandwich. We started with the buns, let's get to the meat. Chapter 19, look at it with me in verses 1 and 2. God's shaping a people who will display his character. Chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 
God tells the Israelites, listen, you belong to me. Now you're going to live like me. You will live differently from the nations around you, but you won't be removed from the nations around you. You will live in the world and display what I'm like to the world. And what follows in chapter 19 is a positive vision for the kind of people God wants them to be, the kind of people who display God's character. Now, the second half of chapter 19 reminds Israel of their set-apartness for the Lord, similar to chapters 18 and 20. But much of chapter 19 is just an elaboration of the Ten Commandments. It's like God's telling them, this is what it's like to, this is what it would be like for you to live this out in the promised land. Elaboration, especially on the commandments that tell us about how to relate to other people. So follow along as I read verses 9 to 18. Chapter 19, verses 9 to 18. So we're reading this, I want you to see what kind of people God wants them to be. Chapter 19, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the soldier. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. So what kind of people does God want his people to be? He wants them to be generous, not stingy. Not just to take everything for themselves, but to give to others. He wants them to be honest, not deceptive. They're going to have opportunity to cut corners. They're going to have opportunities to bend the truth for their own gain. But they shouldn't take it. What kind of people does God want them to be? He wants them to be selfless, not selfish. He wants them to see that life isn't all about what you can get out of it. That they should consider other people's needs and not just their own. What kind of people does God want them to be? He wants them to be compassionate, not harsh. They should first ask when they see their neighbor in need, they, should, they shouldn't first say, it's not my problem. They should say, how can I help? What kind of people does God want them to be? God wants them to be fair, not partial. To give justice not just to people who are like them, but to give justice to everybody. The people on welfare and the people who have a medley. Citizen and stranger. And they'll display all of these qualities if they love their neighbor as themselves, not hate them. What kind of people does God want them to be? In short, he wants them to be like him. So my friend, let me ask you, what's the thing you're most known for at work or at school? What, what's your thing there? Everybody's got a thing. Maybe you're the camp person. Maybe you're the Disney person or the sports person or the motorcycle person. But in, those are all fine and good. 
But in every sphere of life, God intends for, his, for other people to see his character when, he, when they see us. So what should you be known for? You should be known for being generous, and honest, and selfless, and compassionate, and loving. And you know, the tragedy, thinking about the story of Israel, as we read beyond these pages, the Israelites actually become a warning of people we shouldn't be like. They would run after idols in the wilderness. Unfortunately, the promised land, yes, would one day vomit them out. And 1 Corinthians 10 says that we should be warned by their bad example. And so we, maybe we look at the positive vision for what God's people should be like. Maybe it's intimidating. And maybe it's even a little convicting because you identify as a Christian and you haven't lived this well. And we say rightfully so, it should be intimidating. We should feel convicted. We're no better than the Israelites. But then we read the Gospels and we find that Jesus is everything that we're not. We find that Jesus is the model Israelite. That he displays God's character Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That Jesus is generous and honest and compassionate and thoughtful and fair. You know how much Jesus loves his neighbors? He loves his neighbors who are even his enemies. And you know how much Jesus loves his enemies? How selfless and generous he is? He dies for them. That we should look at the call to display God's character the same way we looked at the calls to be, to be devoted to God and the call to be different from the world. We should look at this by looking to Jesus first. We should look to Jesus as our pattern and as our pardon and as our power. My friend, is that who Jesus is to you? Your pattern, your pardon, and your power. The pattern for the life you were meant to live but haven't lived. The pardon for taking the judgment for the penalty that you deserve for breaking God's law, but you didn't have to bear it. The power that having fulfilled the law for us, Jesus now fulfills the law in us. Because Jesus lives and reigns in us by his spirit. We can fulfill the law of love because Jesus is in us, and we can display God's character to the world. So let's just end the, end the sermon on a hopeful note. Christian, you can do this. You can display God's character. You can live holy as God is holy. I think of Philippians chapter 2, which says, Has, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So holiness takes effort, yes. But through Christ as our pattern, through Christ as our pardon, and through Christ as our power, we can be shaped into the people God wants us to be. When that happens, that's when the world will find our message and power. Let's pray. Holy God, we worship you and adore you as one who is unlike us, as one who is pure and unstained, as one who is good and thoughtful and compassionate and generous never stingy, never mixed motive, never selfish. God, as we praise you, we confess that we need your grace 
in order to be forgiven and in order to be the people you've called us to be. And this grace is a person, Jesus. Lord Jesus, may we be reminded again today that we need you in order to live the lives you've called us to live. So please continue to be our pattern and our pardon and our power. Do this even as we leave this time and this space so that when we live out in the world, when people look at us, they may see what the light you make glorify. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Our first response to hearing the word of God is seeing the word.